Welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Nick Rapold, and I'm at the Toronto Film Festival. You already know we're here because we already perpetrated one episode already. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comet, and I'm very happy to be joined by an all-star squad, starting with... Aliza Ma, the head of programming at Metrograph. And... Eric Hines, curator of film at Museum of the Moving Image and Film Comet columnist. And... Nick Davis, contributing editor at Film Comment and professor of film and gender studies at Northwestern University. And Michael Kresge, editorial director at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and Film Comment contributor. So fasten your seatbelts, in other words. Uh, we are now in day, I can't even count five. what day it is. Five, uh, five or 500, one of the two, of the, of the festival. So, uh, you know, a lot of the um, big titles, small titles, Red titles, blue titles have all have all come out of the woodwork. Uh, I, I think we should just take the bull by the horns and talk about High Life, the long-awaited Claire Denis film, High Life. But apparently, well, you don't want to talk about it. <laughs> well, I, I feel we should we should situate ourselves in terms of the fact that th- oh. two of you just walked out of High Life. Oh, you mean you walked out? No, just no, not left like the not theater. like left the film in the yeah, middle. Just left the theater. We, we just saw the film momentarily. Oh, okay. Uh, several minutes ago, I saw it last night. Nick, when did you see it? I think it was yesterday night. Right. So you and I saw it together. Yes. Did you hang out with Claire afterwards? I felt uh, like I did not oh, hang out with okay. Claire. I thought you might have, and that would have been cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I will say that no, I, don't, I, I think she asked. was at her own party for about 10 minutes, which is her oh, want. And then she just also, in her introduction, she made a snarky comment about her own distributor. Um, that was so wonderful. It's a good chance she didn't spend a lot of time yeah. at that party. I did That's see true. her this morning. They fed her at the uh, annual Ebert luncheon. Oh, right. Where they she gave her a golden cast uh, thumbs up. Award. Yeah, they gave her a thumb. With a super heavy base. And when she took it, she was like really shocked by its weight. <laughs> That's not going to carry on. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, it's going to look weird in the scanner. And she she actually, also threw subtle shade on Godard, actually. which was really interesting. Okay. She did what, Godard? At one point, somebody was introducing her, <laughs> and they said, you know, you're, you're just one of the most uncompromised artists of our medium. And they said, the only other person I can think of who's as uncompromising is probably Godard. And she's like, eh, so, so. <laughs> you said something about subtle shade. <laughs> it was kind of subtle. Everybody died. It was great. Wow. I mean, I love her so much. Jeez. So should we talk about High Life? Yeah, yeah. I, I know. I we're... think one of you guys should synopsize because Michael and oh I are God. still in the throes. Nick, this is you. To synopsize? Synops- you're, you're good at this. Am I? There, there's a spaceship, and uh, Robert Pattinson is on the spaceship, and it's hurtling through space, and he seems to be alone except for a baby who's in a very makeshift crib. They don't have a real crib. They made it out of, like... Uh, concrete blocks and netting uh, and the baby's really cute and Robert Pattinson has a re- real rapport with the baby both as a person <laughs> and as a character but you don't know how they got to this point so they they have flashbacks that try to inform you of that and right. you learn that, that you know at an earlier point in time the, no spoilers the spaceship had more people great works and yeah does that, has that worked for you? And some of those okay. people are? Some of those people are... Juliette Binoche. Oh, Juliette Binoche, yes, who is the physician of the spaceship. And she takes care of people when they have boo-boos. And <laughs> also seems to do other stuff. Um, and there are also, you know... Um, it, there's kind of a squad of different people with different predilections and personality traits. You want me to keep it vague, right? You know what? I'm, I'm sitting closest to you, so I'm just going to hold your hand if that's what you need while we do this. <laughs> keep going. For well, anyone who ever sees this film eventually, if I hope they go back and listen to this. Because the idea that Julia Binoche does other stuff is the best description of her performance in the film. <laughs> By a five-year-old, yeah. 
You're giving me a lot of fuel for how I'm going to write blurbs in the future, actually. It's filled with characters of various predilections. predilections. <laughs> because it's not untrue. It's not untrue at all. Well, yeah. all right. I've, I've, I've done the summarizing. Now do the analyzing. Where to begin? Well, I mean, again, this is like why I wanted us to talk about when we just saw the film. And, you know, I made a snarky tweet of myself last night because the idea of having to come up with a reaction and have an opinion on this film within minutes of seeing it is absurd because it's a sort of film, like basically anything she's ever done, that warrants weeks of thought and you know a, a sort of evolution of thinking over the course of time because clearly that's, I mean, there's so much in this film. Um, the one thing that I, I, I remember thinking about it after, immediately afterwards is how I'd never seen anything like this film, and yet it also feels very much like what Claire Denis would do with this type of material, with this type of prompt, with this idea, like what a Claire Denis space movie would be. You can't necessarily know what she's going to do, and at the same time it all feels like, oh right, no, these are the things that she... Um, I think it's really interesting. For some reason the thought occurred to me while I was watching this that Sci-fi is a super fascinating genre for formal exploration and, you know, something about it. I, I remember um, one time, I think I was interviewing Jia Junka, and he said every Chinese filmmaker wants to make a wuxia film, you know. And I wonder if a lot of people think about the sci-fi film genre as a sort of pilgrimage in a way in their filmmaking trajectory because of all of the sort of uh, medium-specific sort of explorations that it offers. Yeah. Well, it is a really interesting genre because on the one hand, it does offer a, a lot of opportunity for formal exploration, but people don't always take the opportunity to do that uh, in a way. And, and, and then there are all these conventions of it that can kind of, as you kind of deal with all the conventions, you're at a certain point where it's hard to make it look you know, that much right. more radical. It, it offers you the opportunity to break yeah. the mold, but it also offers every opportunity to yeah. be the mold. Yeah. So. But yeah, a ton of people have been doing this. I mean, James Gray has, uh, one of the last people I would think of making a science fiction movie is, is, has, has made one that'll come out. And, you know, you could just go down right down the line. Um, sign well, up. it winds up being an opportunity for philosophical exploration. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it yeah. invites theological and philosophical you know, um, roads. And yet what I love about what Claire Denis is doing is I wouldn't say it's not philosophical and yet it winds up being very physical, um, which yeah. makes so much sense in terms of her films. Like it becomes, I think more than any science fiction film I can think of, any space film I can think of, it becomes really about bodies and fluids and time and what it yeah. does to bodies and desire. And it's kind of thrilling to see those things played out in that space. You know, in terms of her her work, it winds up being maybe analogous to Trouble Every Day, maybe analogous to The Intruder. Of shades every one of her previous films. It kind of it's, it's kind of true, yeah. yeah. I mean, in terms of like just because there's no external reference point for any of her films, you have to sort of refer right. to her body of work, right, right, um, when watching something new that she's made. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I remember, yeah, I mean, when uh, at one point they're they're exercising and running through the hallway of the spaceship. And I was like, this is so trouble every day. Right, right. I mean, rather, this is, this is so beau travail. Um, yeah. So in terms of external reference points, and I'll just say I'm the only person I think in this conversation who hasn't seen it yet. I'm seeing it tomorrow. But one thing I've been most curious about, and if this is interesting to you, we can talk about it, um, is that trace of the colonial and the post-colonial that, that surfaces. I mean, as we're all saying, you can't reduce her filmography to any one trope or set of concerns. But um, I'm, I think so many of us are impressed by how um, much stamina that particular paradigm has, almost no matter what genre she goes into. And so I've been intensely curious whether those residues can make it into outer space or whether this is a chance to not be in the context of the sort of earthly history and politics that she's engaged in such complex ways. It's an interesting question in terms of, I think it's there, but it's maybe a little bit hidden or a little bit further down in the mix. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of filtered or refracted through the idea well, now I'm get caught again upon what I should mention about the film, but right. I think it's okay to say that they're they are convicts, right? I think that's out there. Okay, mm -hmm. I think. 
Um, and the notion of isolation is so present in all of her films, be it, you know, in Trouble Every Day, being sequestered inside this house, or in the desert in Djibouti. And in space just provides another platform for this um, sort of delving into isolation and, you know, examining that sense of being alone on a almost cosmic existential level. It's interesting. That's why I mentioned the convicts, just to speak to the point about if there's a post-colonial concern, right. it's that right. they're kind of, they, you know, that, you know, they're convicts in space, so they, they carry a history with them. And again, I don't want to like talk too much about, right. you know, the ramifications right. of that. And that also is interesting in terms of the isolation because they've, you know, they've gone from one prison to another prison, just a more high-tech one. I mean, we're also just, I mean, certain things that's probably out there and people have read about already, but I mean, it is her first English language film. Right. Um, Which you could almost forget. I didn't even think about yeah. that, to be honest, somehow it's true. No, it's true. I mean, yeah. but, but that said, there is not a great history of, you know, like auteurs who are not English language directors making a foray into English language filmmaking, it often is their weakest work. Mm -hmm. And I think right. it's, no, it's, not, it's, not, it's not relevant to this conversation at all. Yeah, I would agree with that, yeah. I mean, you were, you were talking about it being very physical, you know, very deeply tactile, physical um, representation of, of a science fiction genre film. And, you know, that it's just essential as any of her other movies mm -hmm. as well. And not always in ways that I expected because you might think if you go into space that it might be, you know, more of a kind of transcendent sensuality or so. I don't know. I mean, but that sort of doesn't, doesn't happen in quite the same way as, as, as it might, I don't know, in like a 2001 way or even something right. like sunshine, um, you know, mm. um, right. It's not, um, squeegee clean in the same way that the, the other sets, uh, of those movies that you mentioned are, it still deals with the messiness of bodies ultimately and, and, and bodily needs and bodily functions and, you know, exploring uh, what, what that means when you're alone in space with these other, other people. I just watched the movie, so I'm probably not going to be particularly articulate about it. There's a lot to think about and work through. Of course, I enjoyed it. Claire Denis films have a very peculiar quality in which anytime there's a new scene or a new cut, it could be literally anything that's happening and you wouldn't be surprised, but you're also shocked. And that movie, this movie definitely had that. I mean, I even felt that way with Let the Sunshine In. It's, it's going into Let the Sunshine In, people were saying, this is her most mainstream film. It's her first comedy, but it doesn't, it doesn't play like any other film. It has the rhythm of no other film I've ever seen. Um, I'd say that's true of this film as well, even though it feels like a Claire Denis film, it once again feels unlike any other film that I've ever seen. And, you know, we kind of gestured, Nick, you gestured at the kind of lack of, or the chronological nature of it. It starts somewhere, you don't know who these people are, where the situation came from, and then it flashes back, you kind of find out how that happened. But within those, in that framework, it's completely fragmentary. So it's jumping around and it's leaving out crucial information. And it's just the kind of movie that it's, not going to appeal to a particularly mainstream audience. I think people are going to be very frustrated by it, and that's obviously A-OK -okay with me, because I'm a cinephile and I love Claire Denis, but I think it's going to be a frustrating film for many, and I think it's intentionally frustrating. And um, I don't, But I don't think that it's designed to do that. I think it actually just the, you know, the form functions really well, what the film is trying to do and say about human nature and isolation. And uh, I think one thing maybe we haven't touched on too much is just how goofy the movie also is. <laughs> it's actually a really weird, goofy, extreme sex romp <laughs> on, top, <laughs> on top of being Very know, an existential film about the nature of mankind. I don't oh, know. It's filthy. It's you know, filthy. When, when Eric and I was just sitting here. I was like, it was kind of porn. Like it was... It was very, yeah, very I mean, dirty. We're, we're tiptoeing it's, it's, around. It certainly is as unsubtle as porn is. Yes, yeah. right. We're tiptoeing around certain things we don't want to spoil, um. but we can we can gesture at certain <sighs> things that happen in the film, certain certain <laughs> objects that maybe Juliette Binoche toys with in the film. Yeah, there are certain follow-ups to Bastards that you may not have expected to see right. in this film. Yes, less 
less horrifying. I would say the sex, th- there are things that almost happen that are truly horrifying or that are gestured at, but then there are, then the sex also is at times rather funny and enjoyable, which is sort of a nice change. Um, but I won't say much more, but there are some scenes once again, that we're trying not to talk about that are the scenes that we will be talking about for many years to come when we talk about high life. Um, and I would love to be able to talk about them now. But There's there's such an interesting tension between the sensuality of uh, of how the camera portrays bodies in in the film and the sort of detached coldness, you know, almost like scientific um, sort of objectification of the act of having sex which is very sci-fi, you know, but the interplay between the two um, distances I found super interesting. Really keeps you on your toes. I agree. And Julia Binoche's hair, I mean, I... Oh, I, it's like I, Botticelli it's obviously hair or a wig, but so oh, it's crazy. clearly a wig. Right? It's like, but it's clearly, like, what a character unto itself, yes. right? I mean, she's always playing with it and, and, and shampooing just, it or letting it just kind of drag down her back. Blow and, around. I mean, it's down, it's, it's all the way down her back. It's... It's um, there's a lot of fetish in it. Yes, and I think that that's also really exciting. And we feel good about Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson. I always feel good about yeah. Robert Great Pattinson. Great Arpads. Arp- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's very good. No, I thought he's great, and and because of the structure of the film, I thought he was great. He he almost does, I think, two great performances because mm. they're 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 kind of subtly different because of the time periods that he's in, and in each of them, I think he crafts almost like a subtly different character with each of those performances. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. That's so, yeah, that's really good. Um, I, <laughs> I, I'm sure we could probably do fill a whole podcast on this, but right. we, we've done a, um, 20 minutes. On, <laughs> on I know we're in space, so you lose track of time, um, but maybe we can jump to, to another title and we can return to it if you want, much like a planet returning in its orbit. So what, what, what do we want to talk about then? I, I mean, I was just going to say that another highly anticipated movie would, would have to be Beale Street. We can start with that. Uh, Nick, would you like to do the honors of sort of summarizing it and maybe what's different a little from the book? Just give people a point. Uh, sure. So the, the launching problem in the story, although the story is also about people refusing to see this as a problem, um, is that a 19-year-old woman and her 22-year-old fiancé are going to be having a baby, which is exciting news to both of them, but heavily compromised by the fact that he's in jail. And they're trying to feel confident that they'll be able to get him out quickly. Um, they're also trying to break that news to each of their families who see many things, including this pregnancy, in really different ways. And so there's a fairly clean narrative line that's about everybody trying to extract Fani from jail, but it's encased within a series of curlicues, embellishments, flashbacks, moments where the characters are thinking, moments where the movie's just thinking, um, that cover all their history together as two people and quite a bit about the other people who are important to them in their lives. And I loved it. Ooh, hit me again. I've seen it twice in in the last day and a half. I just think it's extraordinary. And I think you think that too, Michael Koreski. Um, I really, really loved it. Um, I don't know what I was expecting, which sounds like a strange thing to say because Moonlight was such a sublime film. Um, But of course... People have expectations after such uh, an amazing breakthrough. So I really shouldn't have doubted his craft and his taste and his his sensuality. And uh, this is one of the sexiest films I've seen in a very long time. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's one of the most heartbreaking films, devastating films. The pacing that Barry Jenkins um, creates within sequences and then throughout, like across sequences throughout the film. I think it's quite extraordinary in American cinema. And I was very, very attuned to the way that he directs actors and the way that he directs dialogue and the way, it's the pacing of the way they speak, the way they move across the screen. Everything is completely crafted. It's an exquisitely constructed film. And it kind of transcends the fact that it's a period piece. Like, yes, it's very... um, I would say that the the costumes and the sets are very you know authentic looking and tactile and all that, but you you forget that you're watching a constructed period piece because you get so completely involved in the movements of the of the characters and the actors. 
but I would love to hear more what you think about it. I agree with a lot of that. I'm, I'm maybe wouldn't have said that I forgot it was a period piece because it's a period that I've waited to experience in a movie for a long time and a milieu that, that where has it been? Um, here it is. But that he, as I felt in Moonlight, is so exceptionally gifted at tunneling in on a precisely localized time and place and showing us why this story can only be the story it is because that's where it is and these are the people among whom it's happening. But he makes those characters' experience and African-American experience incontrovertibly global um, because his style, without asking the audience to sit there and spot references, is so saturated with Ho Saocian pans across dialogue and with Wong Kar Wai references a lot in this and Jacques Demy and um, and you just sense in some ways that are narratively embedded the movie has to travel to Puerto Rico um, Fani has a lot of interesting connections that Tish didn't know he had to other cultures that travel far outside of Harlem but just in style it's a global object while also being ineluctably African American and I think we've seen him do that twice in a row now and it's so singular in the context of what else is out there. And when you talk about style and you it's certainly we know Barry Jenkins has often talked about his influences and you know how Shashen, Claire Denis for example, so that was that is a good segue from Claire Denis to Barry Jenkins, but he d- he doesn't have these kind of phoned in stylistic lifts. Right. When he uses these styles he's doing it to shine a light on something that's actually important for people to listen to. So for instance, yeah. that amazing scene of Brian Tyree Henry in the kitchen when he's having, when he's talking, it's not really a monologue, but he does kind of give a lot of his backstory, a lot of his perspective on the world and his time in prison. And he's talking to Stephon James and the camera's, you know, drifting between them. And mm-hmm. it almost feels like the whole world is closed in, the shadows have closed in on these two people. Um, I, I was only in the back of my mind was there like an awareness of this being like a Ho Shao Shen sort of scene. Yeah. But it doesn't matter it doesn't because matter. it's not about that. It's mm-hmm. about the content of what's happening at that moment. And he's using that style to better train the audience's attention and eyes on something that is important and, and, and beautiful. And I, and I don't, I can't think of any other American filmmaker who works like that. And maybe since we're in a place of I'm, you know, trying to make any list at all in my mind of other movies that have panned back and forth without cutting between two black men in a conversation about what their lives are, which also have these interesting fissures in them because there are a couple of cuts in there. It's actually not clear how long they've talked or how much more they might have said, which is something else that I think he's so great at and the way that Moonlight sort of presents as three blocks, but there's there's all kinds of crevices within each of the three of them. This is, I think, an even tougher job for the editors who nail it, of having to move back and forth, not only among so many different time periods, but a lot of the things that happen in this movie importantly happen on the same day as each other. Um, but because of the structure of it, you can miss that. The costumer kind of has to make sure you're tracking that. Although it kind of doesn't matter if you don't notice in some ways. And I can't speak I can't really speak to it as an adaptation. I haven't read that book, though I'd like to hear both it's of you talk more about that. unbelievably close. But I had I just read Another Country by James Baldwin recently, so I was actually kind of, which is an incredible masterpiece for yeah. anybody you're listening, and kind of a strange singular object that could never be repeated. But just kind of being aware of the syntax and the way he writes and the way he writes characters, I found a lot of, I found a lot that kind of visually correlated to what I kind of been thinking of as a Baldwin style. It's sort of remarkable. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a there's a plain I, I, fact about racism being a reason we haven't seen more Baldwin adaptations or almost any Baldwin adaptations. But you get past that hurdle eventually, and there's the problem of how to adapt somebody who's the structures of his fictions and of his essays are really sidewinding, and the voice is so mannered um, and oratorical. Um, and the fact that he is able to, I, I feel like the movie just plays at every minute like the most important question to him is would Baldwin be proud of this in a way that doesn't seem to be constraining him at all. Um, but with the exception of, of an, the end of the movie has changed a bit and he has spared us some bad news about a couple of characters, which seems like a Barry Jenkins thing to do. But uh, he got that book and that is not the book that I think even Baldwin's biggest fans thought, oh, that's the one people will adapt first. And there's a big challenge of, of adaptation, I think. And uh, I felt I almost sensed it in the particular press audience I was with, which is just the kind of big hearted, 
you know, narrator na- voice, uh, which is uh, on, on, on the page, you know, comes across uh, is or is written with such it's an overused word, but such authenticity and such. That's, that's what I keep ter- returning to with Baldwin is just both the, the combination of how authentic it is, but how surprising it is so that they can they can surprise you with the naturalness and the twists and turns of, of phrases. But but on screen, it's one of those things where it's tough, you know, because she's, you know, very open <laughs> about about emotions. And, and uh, I could sort of feel, and again, at Toronto, you're in an audience where it's a mix of just like critics, but also like buyers or whatever, or programmers who are not, or, or not always... There for the whole movie. There for the whole movie, yeah. So I, I felt like there was maybe a little restlessness uh, about that. But Nick, do you better I think the pace that you mentioned is going to be what's going to yeah. challenge people. Um, yeah. And I think that Baldwin cares about immersing you in a headspace and keeping you there, even if it's going to slow down or speed up at different times. Yeah. I, I liked that about it. But yeah. uh, Let's see. Shall we talk about... Elisa, what, what's something that you've... you've uh, the Crossing... This is a uh, a film by, I want to say, um, Bai Xu? Bai Xu. Sure. Uh, it's her first feature, uh, mainland, um, young mainland female filmmaker, oddly produced by Wanda Film Group. Uh, it's, it's very alt for Wanda. Um, it's, it's curious. I have to look more into how this exactly happened, but I, I just spoke to the filmmaker today and she said that um, there's some kind of foundation that Wanda Film Group has recently set up to foster young filmmaking talent. And there's a sort of intermediary group that awards promising screenplays uh, with, with a certain amount of startup funding. And um, she was a recipient of such funds and um, Tian Zhuangzhong who made Horse Thief and who is a instructor at the Beijing Film Academy where she went to school exec produced this um, and it is about Eric <laughs> it's about Eric? <laughs> <laughs> no this is the problem I have 20 some odd films plots I know the, I feel kind like of the I, I feel thing. like Eric and I went to all the same movies, but it's just because Eric was at every movie. <laughs> I wish, actually. Um, she is a, I think, high schooler. teen? No, yeah, yeah like um, pre-adolescent. pre-adolescent. That, that weird she's gap between 15. pre-adolescence she's about 15, and... She's 15 or so. Right, 15 is what I would guess, And too. she... We find out over time that she's somebody who's, you know, not a great home life and, um, but she's a bit of a hustler, you know, so she has a hustle here and there where she's, she's shy, but bri- very brave, shy, but brave. She sells iPhone accoutrement. She's, uh, picks up odd jobs. She, you know, comes from, but you know, you find out she comes from a broken family and that's part of, um, but you know, she doesn't have a lot of money and she's led into, uh, she's surprisingly open considering she seems quite wholesome and young and innocent to, she's quite open to um, being basically um, uh, what's what the word would be a, a career um, uh, for smuggling. A mule. A mule. Yeah. Right. For uh, counterfeit iPhones across the border between Shenzhen, which is mainland China and Hong Kong, right. which is special territory. And there's a um, special passageway between the two, two cities, mm-hmm. coastal cities, where essentially you're sort of crossing a national border. Right. It's, it's very unclear. Which is, which, is, which is, I think, part of the idea, right? Yeah. It is unclear because yeah. like, it used to be English territory mm-hmm. and now it's Chinese, but it also has a special category. And so the fact that she... It, it, yeah, it seems like it's um, inconsistent how it's policed and how it's, you know, how, how it's overseen. Mm-hmm. And she takes advantage of that or the organized crime folks take advantage of her taking advantage of that, basically. Right. So it's part coming of age story, part national sort of allegory, mm-hmm. and also part almost Rafifi-esque heist totally. film. Totally. Um, yeah. I thought I was not expecting... To oh. see something like this at all. No, I know. Um, yeah. And I don't know that it works 100%, um, but it's a fascinating object. Yeah, I and agree. she's a very exciting young filmmaker. I completely agree. 
No, it's the sort of thing where you want the things that you don't necessarily know a whole lot going into what you're going to see at Toronto. That's like, that's the experience I want to have. Mm-hmm. I want to see the crossing. I don't need to see a masterpiece. I don't need for it to be perfect, but I need to be, you know, nodding toward an emerging voice at the same time is not quite something I've seen before. Mm-hmm. And that, that definitely fit that bill. Yeah, it has the sort of propulsiveness of like a, a modern pop song out of Asia, you know, mm. like it's very easy to watch and the the, the characters are extremely charismatic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it's also, you know, stops to really examine these, these lives that are presented on screen and they, they feel whole, they feel mm-hmm. total, they feel very lifelike. And sometimes, you know, films that are made by younger filmmakers from mainland maybe feel a little bit more focused on on sort of filmmaking um, pyrotechnics and, mm-hmm. and not so much on the sort of interior experience of characters. And I think you know the, this film did a really amazing job of bringing this character to life. And it's not a character that we see very often. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not somebody who is necessarily um, very um, uh, outstanding or extraordinary. It's somebody who would fit right into a crowd and you would lose her in a crowd. Sure. And um, to have, um, you know, created this portrait, I I think is quite extraordinary. And definitely handled class issues. Yes. Which are usually muted Mm -hmm. in these films. And it's Mm -hmm. actually really a a major part of what, the films after so well i'm i'm curious what what led you both to 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 see this film well i think i i, I mean i think elisa you you knew a bit about yeah the filmmaker uh well i i saw that tian john had exact produced it and um was super curious i mean he's he's gotten back into filmmaking after a long time being away i mean he was just in the sylvia chang film as her playing her husband, um, and um, that's love. That being love education, and I know that he has been kind of an important mentor to young up and coming auteurs in China. So yeah, that really led me to yeah. to that, and and I watched um, I watched a, a trailer for it. Um, I also saw that Mathieu Leclerc, who has um, edited for Jia Zhangke, um, edited this film. And yet the tempo of it is really bizarre. And you see the sort of um, differences between the landscape in, in Shenzhen and Hong Kong, which is, um, it's sort of like this vertical forest, you know, as opposed to this expansive, natural, more natural vista in, in Shenzhen, um, playing out in the mise-en-scene in a very subtle way. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm glad I saw it. Yeah, no, I hope I hope to catch up with it. Uh, just, just to give listeners a complete whiplash, <laughs> uh, we can jump to either we could do either widows or our time well what have more people seen have more people seen widows or like three of you have seen widows and maybe widows. only two of us have seen our time is that right maybe we'll, actually i feel like people might be curious about widows because steve know, mcqueen steve mcqueen uh hotly anticipated next movie how will he revolutionize the cinema this time <laughs> Tough room. <laughs> Tough room. I liked Widows okay. I didn't love it, but I liked it okay. I, I did not like Shame. I like his other two movies a lot. Um, and I, I, that's my favorite kind of relationship to a filmmaker where I feel like I don't know whether I'll like their next thing or not. So did you, you did not like Widows, I believe. Um, uh, well, well, we should we should say what the movie's about. I okay, guess. so it's a remake of an early '80s British TV uh, two-season series, I think, about four women um, whose husbands have all died in a police action, stopping their husbands in the midst of a sort of high-stakes robbery that we start learning more about as the story unfolds, and. I, I guess what you would have to say is that one of these widows, in this case played by Viola Davis, has decided almost on behalf of the others that they will be perpetrating what would have been the next heist um, planned by their husbands. Um, 
for some complicated reasons about why they need the money, which are in this version connected to an alderman race um, between a wealthy legacied white candidate and a sort of new on the political scene, but very familiar to his community black candidate who we find out fairly early both are have their hands dirty from all the sort of corruption that is tied up in this crime. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I, and it's set in, I want to say the 18th ward of Chicago. Chicago. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought he, I think he thought he was making heat kind of, you know, mm. but with widows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was the pitch meeting. This is where heat, like heat and widows. We'll call it widows. Uh, we'll call it widows. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I just, yeah, I, I felt like it was just, yeah, kind of overlong. I mean, the problem is the trap of that is when you're, as soon as you know a heist is going to happen, you're just like, you're on this train track, you know, mm. um, of preparation for it and of, you know, people like, you know, jockeying for, for, for position in it. Viola Davis playing the, the kind of cracking the whip kind of character and, yeah, I, it just didn't, it didn't gel somehow. I mean, I thought the potentially like the dirty political side might be kind of an interesting thing to, to weave in. And I really like Colin Farrell, who, who, who plays the, the, the legacy, this, this political scion. But yeah, I, I, I found it pretty, pretty unsatisfying that, that, that thread as well, because yeah, I'm kind of running out of gas on this particular film. Did, oh, did you see it? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the widows. Just opened. All right. I saw I got widows. My on. Uh, and you were speaking of Colin Farrell, and I remember that the first note that I took while watching Widows was a lot of American accents of varying success. People in people who know me know one of my one of my big pet peeves is um, action movies or hard boiled American city dramas starring a bunch of Irish or British people. So Colin Farrell doing an especially bad American accent this time because um, he's also playing Robert Duvall's son, which is a really funny casting to me. Um, Robert Duvall's quite amusing in the film, actually. He gets a lot of expletive Latin spit, spitting takes um, that are fairly entertaining. And um, who knows what relationship they have to what was on the page? Possibly... 10%. A better relationship than they have to each other as father and son, apparently. <laughs> uh, very unconvincing casting there. Um, and, you know, then there's Liam Neeson and um, Daniel Kaluuya, who has a brilliant American accent, however, um, though I am a little bit concerned about the continued casting now of Daniel Kaluuya in, in these hyper-frightening villain roles. I hope that that changes. He was so wonderful in Get Out. I think except for a couple sort of troubling stabs at relevance too. Um, there are some, there's this one like particularly um, mm, hot button flashback that everybody I spoke with thought was quite a misstep. Um, other than that, I found it fairly enjoyable. I thought it was um, for the kind of film that it is a fairly sleek one. I really liked the twist that comes halfway through. It was a very well-dramatized twist. It involves a little dog. I'm not going to say exactly what happens, of course. Um, And I enjoy Viola Davis very much always, so I'm glad that she was at the center of an action film. Um, But generally, I thought it was just sort of... um, had a lot of script problems. Not so much in the plotting, but in the actual dialogue and the way that it telegraphed its themes and the way that it kind of just said everything it was thinking out loud in every single scene. Mm -hmm. So there's no question about what you're supposed to be thinking at any given time. Um, So yeah, a little corny, I think. And and then to kind of take a little step back, just to talk about Stephen Queen for one second without going too far into it. I agree with what you said. I, I think Shame is, well, I think Shame is one of the worst movies of the decade. Hands down, I, 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 I talk about it all the time. Do we talk so about the, the New York, New York moment? <laughs> like the close-up of Carrie Mulligan weeping while she sings the slowed-down New York, New York oh rendition. Oh my god! It's it's almost as bad. Traumatized as, for life. It's almost as bad as the when he gets falls on his knees and weeps with the skyline of New York behind him because he had a threesome. He's like, Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, however, um, I think, and I'm not a huge fan of Hunger. I think I just the the ultra stylization of it kind of bothers me, but it's an interesting film and 12 Years a Slave has a, has a lot to recommend it. 
But I do, I do feel that his career had a certain consistency up to this point, which is not that, oh, he can't do a mainstream action film, but I thought that he was always commenting on how to represent violence in cinema. And then to just kind of come out of the gate with this hyper-violent, kind of thoughtless action film that starts with one explosion after another and has some extremely disturbing um, murder scenes, mm -hmm. which are hyped up a bit as entertainment, I think. Um, it made me kind of just question the Steve McQueen project. And uh, I just need to think about that a little bit more, but I was a little disappointed that he went in that direction. Yeah, that seems fair. Um, some of the hyper-violence in the beginning gets reframed by the twists you're alluding to in ways that changed what I thought they were asserting um, in their hyperboles. There's a giant explosion, for example. Um, we learn a little bit more about why. Yeah, no, um, I agree. Those, but I'm also, I'm actually talking even more so about like the scene in the bowling alley, the scene in the basketball court. Yeah. The, the murders, the, the kind of like up close murders that are kind of done as, I, I, you know, I know they're supposed to be kind of uh, blood curdling in a way, but they're also choreographed as entertainment. Yep. And that's I true. think that there was, there was already questions about that in 12 Years a Slave, the way that mm. he was framing and representing violence while pretending to be commenting on it. Here he just dives right into it, and uh, I don't know. I'm just, I guess I'll have to wait for a few more Steve <laughs> McQueen movies, God forbid. I think they resonate have, equally like, as Gillian Flynn questions, maybe, too, um, who I think really likes to put her characters on a board and push them around and, you know, do whatever she wants to do to make those movements seem more provocative. Um, but because of what you're saying of a sometimes over-literalism, um, there are some things in this that are that are not in dialogue. Viola Davis and Cynthia Erivo instantly dislike each other within two nanoseconds and come at each other equally hard. And I can't think of a movie where Viola Davis has gotten to act across another African-American actress who is hitting back just as hard as she is um, and actually get to explore what they explore in this movie without almost saying anything to each other, um, which culminates in a pretty great wordless scene that I kept fearing was going to suddenly have a line in it, and it didn't. Um, and I think Steve McQueen's really good at the word list too. And even in, and being in some of those aldermen campaign offices and seeing like all the tatters of all the election slogans, even though the election hasn't happened yet and how it's already overtaken by its own grief and sort of lost missionness. Um, I think he's, you know, so excellent at kind of production design, um, even in a movie that seems to have its attention elsewhere. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff that really kept me going. There else. are a lot of really nice details, and, and a special shout-out to that um, kind of hard-to-miss approach that uh, um, he takes in that shot, that start, that in the car shot where the camera stays outside, kind of on the hood of the car, while Colin Farrell is having the entire conversation with his campaign manager. Yeah. Um, and it's a it's single, uh, single take that goes from... Um, did you say the 18th ward mm -hmm. that goes from the 18th ward to like the kind of higher end mansion area. Mm -hmm. So you kind of see this, you see the city and how close the haves and the have nots are to each other in this mm -hmm. one drive. And it's very smart. It's, it's calls attention to itself, but yep. it's, it's a, it's an interesting shot. Um, and Art. I want, and I love Cynthia Erivo. So I'm glad you brought her, that up. That that's one of the things that kept me going having Cynthia Erivo in that film. Maybe, uh, you know, we can segue with the, the political aspect there um, into a political documentary um, known as American Dharma. 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 <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Using your, your decades in the ashram to, to, to correct my pronunciation. Wait, who, who among us has seen... Just the two of Oh boy, mano y mano. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the new Errol Morris film. It's his going mano y mano <laughs> with Steve yeah. Bannon. A man with many predilections. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite a few. Um, and piles of Seinfeld royalties, isn't that right? Something awful like that. Used to run Wellspring Media as well. Oh yeah, that's true. And documentaries. You can read Jeff yeah. Reichert's article about uh, his his oeuvre uh, a couple of years ago. American Dharma. Where do we begin? It's 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 in the mold of uh, the fog of war, uh, just in the sense of being devoted to a single and the unknown knowns, right? And the unknown known, yes, De devoted to a, a single, you know, s s disgraced 
say, you know, um, right of center or, or right. a politician of some sort. I have a lot to say about this film. Pretty much none of it good. Um, oh, okay. In that, uh, but I will say as a preamble to either support what I'm saying or, uh, you know, tell you the grain of salt to handle it with is that my, this, I mean, my least favorite Earl Morris films are the films of this ilk fog of war and the unknown knowns. I, I have huge issues with Mr. Death. Um, that's less of a, a little bit different. Um, because I think when Errol Morris, I mean, I revere Errol Morris. He's an extraordinary filmmaker. He's also a great interviewer. And yeah. I just think that there's a certain type of subject that he is actually not best suited for. And I don't think that's a terrible thing to say about somebody. I just think that, um, he frustrates me v deeply in terms of how he approaches an interview with certain people. I think he's ideas oriented. I think he's interested in language. I think he's interested in um, playing with people. And I think he's interested in relating to people. These are really great things to say about an interviewer. Um, and that's why I think he's extraordinary when it comes to ordinary people or interesting people or people who do interesting things that other people might not pay any attention to or have any respect for. And he does. And he elevates people, I think. Yeah. He's actually not somebody who lessens somebody he's talking to. I think almost always he's elevating somebody because he's interested in them. Yeah. I think he's interested in Steve Bannon, just like he's also interested in Robert McNamara. Yeah. I just think that he is allowing people who are media savvy to play themselves for him. And I don't think he finds a way of getting around them. I don't think he finds a way of getting inside that seam. And I found it e even like the most frustrating this time around. Um, because I think if you hadn't read Robert McNamara's book, the fact that he basically parroted himself in Errol Morris's film may not be that offensive because you hadn't heard these things. Right. Fair. Um, but um, this is a film where we all have access to Steve Bannon's rhetoric. We know what he stands for. We know what he says. We know his justifications. I don't know that I need a 90-minute documentary in which he's given all the space that he could possibly want to say all of those things and have really minimal pushback from Errol Morris. And when Errol Morris does push back, I find it actually kind of embarrassing on his behalf because he doesn't actually have any passion or any sort of stick to 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 really challenge what Bannon's doing. I swear to God, Bannon is having the time of his life in this movie. He could not be happier to be in an Errol Morris movie. Somebody who ran Wellspring Media, somebody who directs his own films, somebody who's like a huge fan of Fog of War, which he says in the film, right. which is weird to have as part of the film. Like, um, like, like he is so happy to be a subject of an Earl Morris film and he does nothing, nothing happens in this film to change that. It doesn't mean that we're all naive and we're just accepting everything that Earl Morris, that Steve Bannon has to say. We could be super critical. We could be, we could loathe him. That's fine. But I knew that already. I, I, and, and on one more thing, and I really want to hear you say, but on top of that, to pull the kind of um, over-the-top music, over-the-top stylized moments, and to cast Steve Bannon in these sequences where he's moving in slow motion through a suburban set, or that he's like skulking around, um, was it a 12 o'clock? 12 o'clock high. 12 o'clock high yeah. reconstructed set, because he's loves that film and has a lot to say about it. I find the whole thing, I mean, I just think it's an extraordinary like low point for a filmmaker that I revere. Yeah. And then I want you to speak, please. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I can't deny much of that really. It is, it's weird to say that it's a film that at the same time shows the formula to what he does, but also can feel dilettante-ish. Sure. Because, it's the it's the thing you you always hate when a filmmaker or an artist or writer you like gets political in this in the shallow kind of way where I have an opinion and I want to I want to say something about it which sounds strange to say someone about Errol like Errol Morris but it is kind of like that it, it does feel like he's you know when he's doing kind of cross examination this film that it more just feels like he's it feels amateurish somehow which is very strange. Well, I mean, there's even a moment where he references. Like, my son was upset with me for voting right. for Hillary in the primaries. Like, what are we... Really? Yeah. This is the conversation we're having with Steve Bannon? Yeah. It's, like, who you voted for in the primaries and your son's opinion on this? Yeah. I mean, that's incredibly embarrassing. Yeah, it's more like 
uh, talk show-ish yeah. than, than, than Errol, Errol Morris-ish. Um, you know, it, it doesn't, there's less of a sense of the, uh, I don't know, of the, the kind of, you know, knight's, knight's move kind of thinking that he has when he approaches other subjects sometimes where you're getting at something and you're surprised by how he, he, he wraps things around. I mean, right. everything is so there in front of you right. with Steve Bannon. I mean, the most satisfying point is when he says, he tells him, that's why I think you're crazy, you know? And, and that for me was kind of cathartic to have someone just yeah. have a moment where you're saying, I, you're the, the, the cognitive dissonance of, of your opinions that somehow you're against the elites and we've just listed how you've <laughs> been to like business school. Like you have this, you're a multimillionaire and you still think you're not the elite. Um, and uh, right. it's, it's good to point out the lunacy of it. There's a kind of like alienation effect or what, you know, where you're, where you're just like, this is just crazy, but it, it doesn't, but, yeah, but he, he, unfortunately, like I, in some ways, those are the strongest moments, but they're still kind of pejoratives. It's like, you're crazy. Yeah. Oh, and Trump is like a fuck you president. It's like, yeah, I, I yeah. feel that way too, but that's actually not something to bring yeah. to Steve Bannon. No, it's true. And and then, uh, yeah. And and then there's the the, the, uh, the formal stuff, which is just frankly disappointing. You know, the, the, a lot of Twitter, the, the screen filling with tweets. Like, Sound, I mean, like um, tweet sounds every time a tweet gets yeah, used that, too like it's there's like, <laughs> <laughs> there's sounds. There's like yeah there's like a, <laughs> yeah that that one and yeah he you know he i mean the thing where he's he's kind of mock indulging his his delusions of grandeur which i guess are no longer delusions because he was right in the executive office um you know and this kind of idea of a, of a great um you know, conflagration, this kind of fiery image imagery that he comes up with as well, that, you know, that, that Bannon is raining destruction on us. It's like, yeah, we knew that, <laughs> you know, we knew that, yeah, that just... the world w would end. So it's, it's, it's tough. It, it's, it's weird because it's a movie that feels more than almost any of his, like, this was a get and that's almost it. Well, this, I mean, this, really? Adam Naiman wrote about this for The Ringer, our friend Adam Naiman, who you had on the podcast a couple of days ago, and he and I had a conversation about this just this evening, this this notion of it's almost like his access, he's so high on the access to this right. that it, you almost don't get past the access. Yeah. Um, and uh, the fact that there's a high to the access to Bannon that is met by Bannon being just so happy and proud that he's in an Errol Morris film just means that like, this is, this is actually a really bad, the math behind this is actually quite bad. Yeah. Although I, I think we, I think we would both agree that I don't think we're of the opinion that he shouldn't be making a film about Bannon or shouldn't be interviewing Bannon. Cause no, that's, no, cause no. that's the, the, the kind of, you know, no, that, that, that conversation, around, but I yeah. do think in terms of the New Yorker conversation, which is of course we could get into right. that for, I mean, I, I am somebody who, was craving a David Remnick conversation with Steve Bannon at the end of this. Cause I feel like, Oh, that's a conversation I want to hear. Right. Do I want to hear that in a podcast version? Yes. Do I think that they made a mistake by inviting Steve Bannon to the New Yorker festival? Of course I, I do I actually think that was a bad idea. It's a terrible idea. And it makes me think of this moment as it's just crazy how, I mean, it, we, we should, we can't go into this, but <laughs> I feel like the world has changed so significantly in the last two, three years that we're all playing catch up. And I think that we just all need to step back and know that we are playing catch up and that we are behind. And anybody who thinks that whatever their um, rubric or their approach to journalism, to media, whatever it was two, three years ago has to be rethought. So the, the, the idea, like, like everybody's getting pantsed right now. You know, like Errol Morris is getting pantsed. I think Michael Moore in certain ways is getting pantsed. I think Remnick was, I, you know, I think Malcolm Gladwell being uh, somebody who's sort of like right. right on there immediately as if this is the, we're, we're playing by the same rules he's been playing by for 30 years. And it's like, no, we're not. You're wrong. This is not all about ideas. This is not the, the sort of like the, the gallery of ideas that we can all just sort of, right. somebody's going to like out themselves as being an idiot if we all get a chance to sort of like explore this stuff. It's, it's actually, I don't think that's actually how this works anymore. And just by simply giving Bannon an opportunity to talk, he's not going to hang himself. He's not going to embarrass himself. He's actually going to further his agenda because he wants to burn you down. And by letting him in, you're all, he's already burning you down. And I feel like this film is like, like I want this film to go away in so many ways yeah. because I just feel like, not that anybody, like 
I don't think no no minds are going to be changed by this by this film whatsoever. But I do think that it's a, a in some ways it's a um, a certain kind of marker or even tombstone for a certain type of approach to um, the exploration of ideas right now. Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't know. So all of that to me makes I. I do take the position that you that you rejected a bit ago about mm-hmm. Errol Morris shouldn't be making a movie about Steve Bannon. I don't think that's the same as nobody should be, um, or that there's no such thing as having a public conversation. Actually, the more public, the better. The more people who are going to hit him, the better. But for all the reasons you said early and late in your comments, I think it's inevitable that Errol Morris's methodology is not going to work with this guy. Anybody can see it coming. It has not worked to escalating degrees in several of the last few movies. And so I actually do find it pretty appalling to not have the level of lucidity. None of us have full lucidity about our own stuff. I get that. But like, this is a blatantly wrong object for you. Um, there are plenty of others and I, I do see a kind of nightmare future where the next movie he makes is like about Hillary or the next and like gets into this like well since the people I talk to have different politics in my view right. I'm showing yeah you know but this I think this is an unbelievable lapse of judgment well I, mean, I just think and, and this I'm just going to make a note of it in terms of that which has something to do with the access point that it's really interesting that this festival has three filmmakers of a certain generation, um, certain stature and certain clout. One is making a film about Steve Bannon. Another one is making a film about Mikhail Gorbachev. Another one is making a film about Trump. These are like clearly filmmakers who feel like they need to take on the big fish in a way that I don't know that we need them to take on the big fish. Like that's actually no single film is going to do anything to any of these fish. Um, And is that actually the best way to approach uh, the art form. I don't know. And Frederick Wiseman went to Indiana. Which, <laughs> exactly. So. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't want to, I want to talk too much more about Errol Morris just so we can get to another, another one. But I guess I would, I would say somehow I still have the, the perhaps naive hope that he, there was a way for him to do this and that it's almost like this felt rushed. I know that's also a naive thing to say about filmmaking and especially doc, documentaries, but it somehow felt rushed and somehow there wasn't, yeah, the strategic thinking um, be behind it some somehow, but I, I don't know. On to the next film. What shall be the next film then? We started with Claire Denis talking about a science fiction film. Now we can talk about Peter Strickland making, well, I guess, what's now a Peter Strickland film <laughs> uh, that's in fabric, which is, I have to say, you know, at this point, these feel like movies that are made for publicists to pitch <laughs> to, 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 to writers who then can think they're buddies with the director because they can spot a reference to, I don't know, some Italian uh, giallo soundtrack cue. Thoughts? Well, not to go too much into it. I think, I think we might be in agreement that we don't want to go too deep into well, there's How not could much, we? There's not much to go <laughs> too deep into. Um, Peter Strickland is a filmmaker that I have been interested in, however. Uh, I've seen, this is his third film, I believe. I've seen the other two. I've, okay, I've Catalan seen... Catalan Varga might be the one you're not thinking of. I have not seen that. Okay. I've seen Barbarian Sound Studio and The Duke of Burgundy, films that bothered me to a certain extent because i mean you know the pastiche is obvious and they didn't seem to have much more going on there but duke of burgundy had so many interesting little quirks and fetishes that i thought there might be something more to at least the technique um but in all his films whatever he has going on obvious always just like devolves into like sloppy collages he's <laughs> just like i'm not gonna write anymore so let's just put a bunch of superimpositions on the screen let's just throw a mannequin at somebody yeah <laughs> and this has a lot more mannequins just like duke of burgundy and the problem with duke of burgundy especially was that the pastiche is so foregrounded and you're so um Pav- it's like a pavlovian response you're supposed to have to laugh at everything that when you're making a movie about um kind of like lesbian sexuality, suddenly you're laughing at lesbian sexuality and everything's a joke. And I was very uncomfortable with that film um, as much as I enjoyed some of the little funny 
fetishes and things. But that's the problem. I don't want to laugh at people's fetishes. I want to actually like learn something. And there was nothing, nothing to learn. So anyway, that's all that is saying that this is even worse. <laughs> I think that um, this is a, this is a, the the rare case. I was talking to a friend who was like, I can't wait to see this one because I felt like the other ones were really lacking something. And this this maybe this will be the one where it all comes together. Whereas this completely is like a one more thing regressive. It's about a killer dress and um, that is never made visually interesting <laughs> and that is never made narratively interesting and um, it's it's bifurcated for no reason that I could see. The second yeah. half is especially bad, which is tough because you, you're already kind of tired of it by the midpoint and then the second hour is like unwatchably bad and the same things happen again with less appealing characters. <laughs> yeah. There are some, I guess there are a couple funny performances but overall, I thought it was an unbearable slog. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just, just the, the sheer, the only movies I'd seen so far at this festival, I think I've seen 25 now. And like I, uh, the couple that I've seen that I didn't like were executions I would not pick for stories that I learned a lot from somebody making that story. Like, um, uh, or at least I understand, like, So the Winter to My Skin was a movie that, like, I don't understand what that director's doing with that material, but that's interesting material. Um, Girls of the Sun was a little bit like that, too. Um, this just seemed like, why would anybody make this? And why is your, in? it's like radical insincerity. Like, I don't think you, there, there's a lot of brio to this, but that's different from conviction or investment. And... It's like you're constantly telling yourself, I'm going to suck it to him. But what is it? And who, who's them? You know, like it, it just seems to exist in a kind of vacuum. Who could this possibly be for? And it certainly wasn't for anybody on the screen who looked stranded. I felt stranded as well. Strandedness. I'll leave it at that. All right. There was also, I thought, a lot of very uncomfortable laughter. And I don't mean because the, what we were watching was uncomfortable, but because people were uncomfortable because they didn't know how to react. So you'd have some yeah. random titters in the audience. And um, and I was constantly wondering, what is the joke exactly? I don't understand what the joke is. Like, It's possible that it's about women writ large. Like what you said about lesbian sexuality and the Duke of Burgundy gets widened out to a category I think he thinks of as women in this movie. And the man that he manages to implicate in it, he immediately puts in a dress, um, which is kind of a tell. So when you get to the inevitable Strickland pandemonium at the end and it's just women beating the shit out of each other in a shopping center, <laughs> there you are. There are ways in which this doesn't sound terrible, I have to say. I know that's always a, I know, a, it's a difficult knife edge, right? Right, right. Um, there's another movie I won't name that somebody tried so hard to convince me not to go see and all they did was wet that stone. Um, out of Blue sounds bonkers. Yes, I, yes I, I went to 45 minutes of that. And it involves apparently many scenes of Patricia Clarkson as a homicide investigator saying, even your hand is made from stardust. Do you ever even think about that? And... <laughs> no, but, but on that subject, my though, love, if that's not clear, but you know, but I, I, I have, I have to say like at this festival, because it's such a market festival, because this is like a launch of the goddamn award season. I am really attracted to the things that I don't know what the hell they are and I don't know who they're for. And I want to see that. And so this may not be that film, but I, I you know, like, it's so like I saw Jessica forever, this film that this French film that I have no idea what this is for. I've never seen an exodus from a film quite like this in terms of, I mean, present industry screenings are always exod exoduses, exoduses. They have exodi, <laughs> um, but this one, um, I would say that like 95% of the audience was gone by the hour point. So because of that, I was like, I'm going to stick this out because I don't know what this thing is. I don't know who it's for. I don't know if it's any good, but God bless them. Like they've just shook everybody off. And I, and I, th and I <laughs> um, which is what real big dogs do, you know? And you know, and it's, it's like a snow white and the seven dwarves film in the future with like orphan boys. And it's like homoerotic, but not enough. And then there's a, and then there's like, that's every movie. <laughs> yeah. And then there's like, all of a sudden there's a trance dance scene where all the orphan grown men are like, dancing badly to it in the, each of their environments. I mean, whatever. I, I, 
I was just glad to, to have my eyes on something that I didn't know what to make of it. Yeah. And and I think briefly, like the Garlic Color sort of got us our time has that quality too. Like, um, I don't know that he makes a single good decision in the film, but he makes strong decisions <laughs> and I'm kind of into it. You were gonna say something, Michael. The only thing I was gonna say is the weirdness, to highlight the weirdness of a, of a festival is that In Fabric became the hot ticket for P&I because sure. they had an early screening that had filled up in a smaller house. So word got around, oh my God, this is the film of the festival, you can't even get into it. So everybody was at the screening yeah. and it was a lead balloon as far as I could tell. Yeah. So we'll end with that. <laughs> a lead balloon. <laughs> Aren't you excited? Aren't you jealous? <laughs> uh, well, so that's, that's the Toronto Film Festival as far as we got with it. <laughs> but uh, thank you, all of you, for, for coming out. Thank you all. Thank, thank you. you, guys. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.